Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Sophia McLennan. And it's great to see you, Prof. Sophia. It's been a while, I think maybe eight years, something like that. But yeah, I, I don't like thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> We've put, our, our hair colors are both different. Let's just leave it at More that. More stunning than ever, but, you know, this is all audio, so no one can see. Absolutely. Thank heavens for MP3. When I first met you, you know, I knew you most as a Latin Americanist, although you were doing internationalist work in general. And you've done lots of other things since. This is obviously a very difficult moment in terms of geopolitics, quite apart from any of the other challenges we face. But here's the the moment to ask you what you're thinking about right now, what's dynamizing you, what's getting you going or maybe dragging you down. I don't know. I say this with a glass of red wine in my hand because, you know, it's eight o'clock in the evening where I am. Yeah, I wish I could be joining you. Uh, It's not a small question you start with. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry, Prof. I know. I, I realize. So I think that it's difficult to be starting 2024 as somebody with the kind of background that I have in the humanities. I studied philosophy at Harvard uh, in the 80s. And so I look back and think a lot about my intellectual formation and what it maybe did to help me make sense of the moment or didn't, right? So I was at Harvard in what is a notoriously narrow philosophy department. By way of uh, illustration, I had to petition to get a course on Buddhist philosophy to count towards my major. (laughs) So couldn't have been more dead white guys than, you know, it gets, right? Um, Also, this is what you might call uh, analytic philosophy. Exactly. Also, also completely ahistorical. Yeah. Yeah. Just these are the ideas. To the extent that there was history, it was philosophers in conversation with each other. Um, And at Harvard, I had this course that I took that I believe really did. It is one of those examples that changed my life. I took a course with Carlos Fuentes. Oh, wonderful. Taught at Harvard for two years. So what's the serendipity there yeah and taught a course on um history and myth and latin american fiction and in that class it included things like erasmus and machiavelli <laughs> and cien años right so i i had this class and i was like wait I was doing this philosophy thing over here, but this is really what I want to be doing. Oh. And one of the things that I think, I mean, there's a lot of things that happened with that class. It, it then got me to decide to go get a PhD in Latin American studies and go to Duke where I got to work with Jameson and Ariel Dorfman. And again, just happened to be in a place where things were going down. Right. 
And Dorfman, whom you've written, you've written about Dorfman's work extensively. You have at, at least yeah, one book about Dorfman. That's actually another really good anecdote. If people want to hear a sort of interesting story, it's a sidebar. Um, but but just to finish this concept with Carlos Fuentes's class, mm-hmm. it wasn't just that he taught me that in order to to kind of think through the philosophical questions that I felt passionate about, that you needed to sort of look everywhere. That was Fuentes, right? You look everywhere, but you're very deliberate in how you connect things and how you think about them. And it was this sort of odd framing as a method that I didn't realize at the time. It was, you know, I was young. I was just excited. I was reading Cortázar for the first time. (laughs) Uh, But now I look back and I think in exactly the same ways that Fuentes seemed sort of like a swashbuckler, you know, when it came to being an intellectual. I think he, I think that that really formed me. And now, and you said, what are you thinking about now? Uh, You know, the next person that besides Dorfman, right, who really influenced me was Fred Jameson, who, again, sort of, you know, he's, he's, he's a far more rigorous thinker than I will ever be. But he did have this, habit right of looking everywhere to find the answers you're trying to get and here we are in 2024 and I think if anything that's the one thing that has stuck with me right that the method has to adapt to the moment and whatever the moment calls for is what methods you have to do and as a consequence you know my own personal work I have migrated so far from, you know, the close reading and the analytical philosophy tradition I was initially trained in. And so, you know, to many, it, it, I go back sometimes and read things that I wrote a long time ago, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm a pretty different scholar now. It's interesting. I'm writing down some of what you said. The fascinating thing about looking everywhere is that, in a way, it's a better iteration of what Matthew Arnold et al. were trying to get at with the idea of the best that has been (laughs) thought and said, right? Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things that that I know mattered to me when I was my younger self and Mm. still do, right? Mm. I wanted to do work that made a difference. Mm. And I think that's just really common. I mean, that's not unique. We're uh, passionate graduate students. We want to do work that makes a difference. And then how we define the difference, of course, varies. But in those early days, as sort of a cultural studies Marxist person, I wanted I wanted to think about this in a way that could see, you know, some sort of change in relationship to it, not just change in how we understood a text. And I started to realize that I was going to have to adapt my methods or I wasn't going to be able to try to make a difference or even recognize what making a difference was. So it had to be far, it had to have an empirical footprint in a way that I wasn't trained in grad school to to do. And so 
one of the big things that that has happened in my intellectual life is I, for example, just submitted IRB <laughs> because I'm I'm involved in these in these completely different kinds of projects that are really trying to gather data, not just observe and interpret the world as it's in front of us, but really try to gather data to back up things that we are intuiting, but we don't know. And, and in part, because this is the funny thing, I, you know, it'd be a fun debate if this podcast were a debate, but, but it isn't, um, is to talk about what is it about the humanities that, that puts us in this defensive role all the time to argue why we matter. And I think part of it is because the value we add isn't legible to some of our colleagues. Um, there's a lot of other reasons, but that's one of them. So um, this started in the book, I think you blurbed it, the Globalization of Latin American Cinema book, where I said, you know, if we're going to make arguments about, say, the neocolonial effects of the global cinema market, shouldn't we have data to prove that? And one of the things that happened in that book was that a lot of assumptions that people had about how uh, globalization was going to affect Latin American cinema were simply not true. Like people thought oh, markets will open, there'll be less state support. So it will be the end of Mexican cinema, Brazilian cinema, Argentine cinema. Those were the ones I really focused on. And it was certainly true that in the 90s, you saw this dip, but then the markets adapted. And actually, all of those markets got, in terms of films being released, films being seen in country, awards being uh, won at the Oscars, every metric you could, you know, think about in terms of what makes cinema matter, boomed in the 2000s, right? So, so that was a good example. I was like, but if you read other people's work, they might be talking about, say, how the multiplex was ruining the film going experience. And yet the data on the multiplex didn't really bear that out. It didn't back up the the sort of, um, you know, again, those those gut instincts that the, the math wasn't there. Or you'd read an article about how important a film was. And then I'd find viewer data and there were maybe 220,000 people who saw the movie in a country of millions. So... And again, like there just wasn't even op-eds. There just wasn't anything to show the significance of the film. So stuff like that. It, that was the beginning of me saying, you know, this is part of why I think we're missing that that piece. If we're humanists that want to make a difference, that want mm -hmm. to talk about that intersection, right? We have to go find the proof. And you mentioned the acronym IRB, Prof. McLennan, which stands for Institutional Review Board which is something that really starts with the Nuremberg trials and questions about experimentation on humans, moves on to the ethnographic as well as biological elements of U.S. research in many other countries, sometimes referred to as ethics committees. <clears throat> but the IRB, which is something that pharmaceutical companies also go through, as well as scholars like yourself, often refer in this case to things like ethnographic research. 
Is that what you're engaged in at the moment or planning? No. Well, so what we are doing to the extent that, so first of all, IRB is annoying and bureaucratic and mostly stupid and takes a really long time uh, for no good reason. But again, like, right, somebody did something bad. And so now we all have to go through a system Uh, to the extent that that it's important for uh, my research team to go through IRB. And um, your listeners will like to know that Steve Duncombe is on one of the two projects I'm doing uh, is anonymity. So for us, it's about anonymity. So we are actually working on some relatively sensitive things. Um, And the project with Steve, what we are looking at, which is, um, again, uh, it has this public impact side. So what Steve and I both are interested in is this question of whether or not creativity for activists has a measurable difference in terms of making the activism have a higher chance of success, also in terms of helping the activists stay engaged right, and positive in the project. Mm. And even more importantly, does it help reframe the public narrative? So in the project he and I are working on that's partnering up with Greenpeace, we have a really unique problem here with climate, which is that most people get that there's something wrong and no one is doing anything. So a lot of time activism is about raising consciousness. It's about saying, hey, we have this thing and you should worry about it. Well, the activists don't need to do that with the climate issue because somewhere between 70 to 78 percent of the global population knows we have something wrong. Um, What has happened, though, is that back starting in the 70s, not surprising, big oil decided to invest in very deliberate ways in op-eds and a bunch of different sort of, you know, again, think tank projects that would make green activists look fringe. So the term tree hugger, for example, which we use in a negative way, actually comes from a really terrible story of a massacre in India. So to turn a phrase like that into something that's pejorative is is really something else. And so research has shown that people know we have a climate crisis, but don't want to self-identify as activists on it. So the delta is much bigger than what you would see in other kinds of issues. So the project we're looking at is what happens when the activists are creative and use irony and sort of focus the activism on the narrative itself, right? So, you know, for example, if you go out and you just say, hey, you know, we don't want this plant here, we don't want this pipeline here, that kind of anger, which of course is legitimate, that tends to be reported in the news as disruptive. And the activists are depicted usually in pretty negative ways. But... If you decide to throw a party for the bank that screwed the planet the most and you bring champagne and you dress up and you go out in front of HSBC and 
you start saying, you know, we're celebrating you. We're so proud of you for doing this horrible thing, right? People will pay attention. They will listen and connect and they, they like watching this. And so that's just one example for, you know, so, so the surveys we're doing now, because both Steve and I have done empirical data gathering that's more observational. Now we're going to survey inside the activist community at Greenpeace, the people who contribute to Greenpeace, but maybe aren't activists, and then the general public to gauge their reactions to different kinds of tactics. So the concept here is, can creative, ironic, satirical tactics move the needle in ways that straightforward ones don't? Because we know the straightforward ones aren't working as effectively as they should. So here you can see why we need IRB. Because we need to, we're working in six different countries. We need to make sure that activist identities are anonymous. So that's one of the ways that the IRB matters. We have to show them how we're going to collect the data and how we're going to disconnect it from identity markers, things like that. It's interesting because some of the discourse that used to be associated with the figure of the humorless feminist, in a sense, became affiliated with the idea, although I don't think this was used as an expression of the humorless environmentalist. So I do think that the doomsdaying statistics and scientific truth are well matched, well articulated with a strong sense of humor. Uh, but you know, you're trying to find out whether this is true or not. But I do think it helps to leaven the heavy-footed critique from the bourgeois media and these think tanks that you refer to and the public relations firms now called, of course, strategic communication that have basically picked up on the rhetoric that the same institutions used in favor of smoking in the 70s and 80s and transferred it to their ecological crimes. Now, of course, you're at Pennsylvania State University, Prof, which is one of the world centers, if not the world center for training meteorologists. And of course, he's also... I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say developing nuclear bombs, but hey, okay, yes, meteorologists. Good. Not meteorologists, <laughs> Michael Mann. And yeah, I mean, on the train there, you do go past some nuclear accidents that have happened and are probably waiting to happen. But it is a very important university for thinking about climate issues. So I'm interested in the extent to which that's relevant to your formation, where you are, or whether actually that doesn't hasn't really played a part. So far it hasn't. I mean, yes, it's hard to not kind of be in the contact high of Richard Alley and, and you know, Michael Mann and, and all, all the work here on sustainability for sure. If anything, though, what I notice is in the existing projects many of those science faculty have, it doesn't occur to them to have an expert on narrative, mm. which is what we are, Yeah, right? We know how storytelling works and that's that's been the thing so here i am i'm in i'm in a research team right so there's steve and i were both kind of these weirdo again like cultural studies 
you know, 2.0, where we're redefining interdisciplinary research. Uh, but our colleagues, like we have on our team, a neuroscientist, two psychologists, you know, political scientists, like doing big data, you know, they create the graphs and do all these things that look cool. Um, and the other project that I'm on, I partner with Serge Popovich, who's the activist from Serbia who helped bring down Slobodan Milosevic using creative activism. And in that case, we're really trying to see, you know, does this type of activism help as a defense for people power movements? And we already have, we published a, an essay in the Journal of Democracy uh, that came out a year ago that gives the first ever data that shows that this tactic, you know, using these kinds of creative tactics is measurably different. Um, so there's a whole other study there where, you know, we're working with uh, activists, some of whom are really in pretty precarious situations. And you mentioned earlier about some of the troubles that the humanities face some of which might be of its own making, many of which nowadays are quite external to it. How have you found the experience of working with scientists and social scientists, given that you've undergone a, a quasi-transformation? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a few things that my colleagues in the humanities that don't have that kind of degree of collaboration across fields might find surprising. Right. So the first is that there's an intellectual rigor at the level of sort of processing concepts. Mm. And I think surprises those of us who think that's what we do. We're good at this. Like, how do you define, say, uh, um, you know, public narrative? Like there is a lot more work that our colleagues are doing in sociology and political science and anthro and communication studies, then I think we sometimes give uh, due credit. Um, interestingly, though, right, they never cite the humanists because they don't think our research, like they're not, they can't really, generally they don't. So that that's always a, an interesting thing for me. Uh, but the other side of it is that there's a real sort of respect for what we are bringing to the table. And that's, again, one of those things that I didn't quite uh, anticipate, maybe because I brought in this concept that, you know, the, everybody's kicking the humanities around. I haven't, you know, in part, I'm the person organizing the team. Maybe they say this behind my back. But, uh, you know, I, I'm the one saying, hey, look, I think, for example, this is a side issue, um, doing a separate project. I think satire affects how the brain works, right? It helps you think about things differently. Like we can say this theoretically, but I want a neuroscientist to actually cognitively map it with fMRI research because I'm really interested in, in what happens to the brain on satire. It just allows me to have a little more proof to this thing I'm, I'm seeing, for example. Uh, the the synergy between myself and my neuroscientist colleague is fantastic. It's just really cool. Like, and then 
again, one of the things that will happen is you have uh, concepts like one of the things that they're interested in is what you call issue priming. This could go back to the climate, which is, well, I know the climate is a problem, but I don't want to think about it. So, again, could satire, could comedy get people to think about an issue when they otherwise wouldn't? Like if I sit down and I'm going to have a glass of wine, I'm not watching a Netflix documentary on how the planet is about to, you know, spiral out of control, but I might watch comedy and that comedy might bring these issues up so that they stay fresh in my mind in a different way. Right. So uh, we're working on a project like that. And, and, and again, like, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think that, we have all this collaborative potential. All we have to do is start getting involved in the conversation. Uh, you know, and that goes to another question that you were sort of pointing at. I increasingly have, have this feeling that if we are not trying to take our ideas into the public sphere truly, then again, if you're one of those people like, like me, who is like, I want my, I want my work to have some impact then you have to find a way to explain it to you, you know, your aunt. <laughs> and if you can't, then work on it until you can. Because if you can't, then what you're doing is actually having a very narrow conversation, right? About, you know, what this one section of, you know, capital really means. And you can do that. That's a fantastic thing to do. But don't think of that as a thing with the big public footprint because it isn't so i'd like to get on to that issue of so-called public intellectualism in a moment but before i get on to that something related there too is this question of satire because you've written and edited books on a voluminous number of topics one of the most recent is about the satire that is contemporary U.S. politics, and we're speaking on a day of the Iowa primaries when the coronation of the babe in swaddling clothes aged 174 is about to occur, if it hasn't already. Tell us about your book to do with the Trump epoch, because one of the things I'm still staggered by is that all over the world, I mean, not in Spain, where I am, where I live, but all over the Anglo world, Biden is not on the front page. The idiot child is. So tell us a bit about your book and where the satire story fits into that, if you would. So I had been working for a while on this question of like how satire uh, affects democracy, affects civic engagement, you know, frames public narratives. I did a book on Stephen Colbert. And then I did a book called a satire saving your nation, our nation. And, you know, okay. So the trends were there. And I can interrupt for a second. When I, before I knew you, or no, when I first met you, perhaps I saw a reference to the book on Colbert and I thought it was Colbert as in the French mercantilist. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know, I, Hey, so the other side thing is that when I was at Harvard, I was on the Harvard lampoon. So clearly everything was written. Got it. Anyway, sorry, uh, I just had to throw that in there. Yeah, you don't realize you look back and I was like, oh, I was on the lampoon. Oh, uh, yeah. Brian was there. You know, maybe there was just this thing happening and it got in my head. Anyway, yeah. so 
Trump. So for for satire nerds, Trump is a very curious object because the way I like to describe it is that if the satirist has a toolkit and in the toolkit you have a hammer and the hammer is exaggeration and you have a screwdriver and the screwdriver is infective. Well, you know, it turns out that Trump already took like half your tools out of the toolkit. Mm. And now mm. you're left with like the mallet and the Allen wrench. So basically what we saw in satire was a, a, a way more gloves off. I'm not even really being funny or ironic. I'm just pissed, which was a lot of what we saw from people like Stephen Colbert or Samantha Bee or Jimmy Kimmel or Seth Meyers, where they just came out and they said, are you kidding me? That's yeah. not satire. That's just using their public platform to express frustration. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Allen wrench which is the extraordinarily creative ways you have to satirize something that already seems absurd just in the most obvious ways, right? So that's Alec Baldwin's impersonation. That's Sarah Cooper lip syncing to Trump. And what I think is one of the most sort of important uh, impersonations, right? Uh, But think back. During Trump, we suddenly had a lot of women impersonating men in a mainstream way. We'd never had that before. Why did that happen? Because toxic masculinity literally got unleashed in this really extraordinary way. And the mainstream public could find Melissa McCarthy being Sean Spicer to be just immensely gratifying. Uh, so the the thing is that the argument that I make is that when the world is ironic, the best way to see it is through creative irony. Because again, in the street news, Trump does another idiotic thing. The news doesn't even know the register to say it, like to report in a straight way on a presidential candidate pretending he's a disabled reporter. Like how can you even tell the story? And so what it turned out to be was that the tongue-in-cheek and sassy, again, and of course, fundamentally ironic coverage of the satire, uh, you know, televised largely, but not only, um, of the satirist was one of the best ways to make sense of something that didn't make sense. Um, and And that just has stuck, right? Because... I called it before when Biden was first elected and people would interview me and, oh, now we're going to have Biden satire. I said, no, we're really not. That guy just isn't that interesting. I mean, you can only do so many memes of a guy in a muscle shirt next to a classic car, right? That That's Biden. Yeah, and the, the comb over is not good material. It's one joke. No, and he's old, so what? I mean, it just isn't that... And of course, a lot of people aren't going to want to make fun of his uh, speech impediment. So there really isn't a lot there. Uh, whereas Trump continues to offer fuel. Uh, and p- folks worry that the satire makes someone who is a serious danger seem like a joke. And it's a good question. 
But again, as my book points out, that's just the wrong thing to be worrying about. Uh, I think people are properly worried about Trump. I don't think the satire did anything to sort of say uh, that we don't have to take him seriously. To the extent that satire missed it, it was the same way the whole United States missed it, thinking that Clinton had a shot and missing how serious this was. But that wasn't because of the satire. That was just because no one could believe he would win. Well, I think also the bourgeois media coverage just amplified his stupidities, not as stupidities, but as things to be considered. I would just have cut it down. If I'd been running the New York Times or the Post, I'd have just said, minor player. Don't report him. And you would have changed the history. That's right. I mean, if anything, right, this is like Jeff Zucker's fault. It's what CNN did. Big time. Leslie Moonves now, of course, discredited, although it's not proven on sexual grounds, saying uh, Trump may be bad for the country, but he's good for CBS. I mean, that's what these people did. Now, moving on to the second issue I I mentioned that touches on your point about public intellectual activity, sort of ugly phrase, but you know what I mean. Tell us about writing for Salon.com, where you've written several columns and some people outside the United States, about a third of people listening are based in the US, about a fifth in Britain, about a sixth in Australia, about a sixth in Spain, most of the rest in Latin America. So some people may not know about what Salon is, Salon.com. So if you could tell us that and tell us about what you've written about there. Yeah. So, you know, Salon is a, a, a you know, sort of openly left-leaning online uh, player. It, it used to be neck and neck with Slate, but I think its readership is significantly less than it was or slates is bigger or however you think of it. Uh, so it certainly gives your straight news, just breaking news. And then it has commentators, op-ed writers, and that's what I've been doing for them for years. There was a period of time when I wrote for them every week. Uh, that's hard to maintain. Uh you actually find that you're like, I'm not sure, you know, I, I would have a research assistants that would keep these cold leads in case we needed to come up with something for the week. Uh, but it's a very interesting thing because in general, you're really working with say 1800 to 1200 word, 1800, 800 to 1200 words. So it's not a space for nuance. And it's the concept here is you're trying to get something out. If you do it well, it starts a conversation and you don't get trolled too badly. You know, I I've had uh, pretty serious death threats, uh, usually always alt-right driven. Um, I got Rush Limbaugh came after me and when he was alive, he's dead now. It's not my fault. Uh, uh, you know, calling me a professorette on his show. Uh, so I've, I've, got, I've gotten quite a bit of public visibility. I've certainly been, I've been on BBC TV. I've, I've been on the Australian broadcast uh, network. I've done quite a lot of media 
I don't know if it's directly connected to the salon stuff or a combo of things, but uh, I've been on CNN a number of times. Uh, so uh, I got, you know, I've done NPR interviews, things like that. So there's sort of a range of things I write about. I do write about higher ed, uh, obviously passionate about that. I write a lot about in defense of um the, you know, students, right? So young people, now they're not millennials. The Gen Z started off writing about millennials. Now I write about Gen Z. Shows uh, been there a while. <laughs> shows I've been at it for a long time. <laughs> I write about, uh, obviously, sort of things connected to my research, right? The the power of satire in shaping public opinion. And um, I got, I, ha- I got I, for example, when Trump uh, sued Bill Maher, Trump sued Bill Maher for something. It's sort of a long story, but needless to say, then it allowed me to go back and tell the story of uh, Jerry Falwell suing Larry uh, Flint and the decision the Supreme Court made to defend satire. You know, so I I write those kinds of pieces. But then I also just write... For a second, sorry, just to say Bill Maher is a... TV personality used to be on was it CBS and then HBO. He's think. on HBO now. HBO yeah. now, but was on one of the networks. Who is a kind of liberal satirist, but libertarian too, and is anti-Trump, but is also edgy and risky when it comes to the sorts of cultural politics that probably you and I would align with. Yeah, and he's also just caustic. But the lawsuit was because he offered Trump $5 million if he could prove he wasn't the spawn of an orangutan. And this was sort of in light of Trump's birther wanting Obama to produce his birth certificate. But then Trump actually did send his birth certificate to Bill Maher and said, here's, you know, where's my money? And that's when Maher was like, dude, that was a joke. And in this country, we make them and you have to deal with it. So anyway, but it became a lawsuit. So I, because I know obviously a lot about the history of satire, my pieces can get into that, but then they can just get into sort of larger questions. Like I did a a pretty um, popular piece that came out in the middle of COVID, which was like, why it's so hard to argue with the right, you know, or, uh, yeah, different things like that. So, you know, I just did a piece called The End of the Fair Fight that was referencing Gaza, which has gotten, you know, both good and less good attention. And I, I'm sorry, I have to move rooms because the boss of the household, my pussycat, is being <clears throat> assertive in his hegemonic masculinity, let's say. Now, in terms of the talking masculinity, in terms of some of the negative responses you've had, has misogyny been a big part of that? Yeah, so the best example I have was I wrote a piece that was critical of the movie American Sniper, which um, came out a while ago, but it was, you know, this movie that looked at this guy who was a sniper in Iraq and his story and uh, was just sort of one of those military right-wing patriotic you know this is is to me it was a highly disturbing movie yeah um and it was directed by Clint Eastwood 
And so the piece that I wrote said that the flaws in the film you could have seen coming uh, because of two particular things that Clint Eastwood had done that, you know, sort of helped us see his worldview. And one was, uh, you know, um, aggressive bullying and the other was a lack of context, right? Sort of delusional lack of context. So I talked about him threatening to kill Michael Moore. And I talked about his weird speech to the empty chair that was part of the Republican uh, RNC. Uh, I think it would have been in 2012. In any case, I don't remember for sure what year, but I think it's 2012. And in any case, um, so I wrote this piece and I just, it was playful, but it also did analyze that, you know, there were these problems in this movie and oh boy, I got a lot of death threats from that. And I got a lot of chatter, I think because at the time there were right wing email groups that would send out a piece I did and my email so that the people in the group would just hammer me. So what we did was we aggregated the comments that were on Salon, the emails that came to me, right? And and then all of the tweets, because all the aggressive tweets, and we categorized them as what exactly was it that the person attacked me for? And misogyny was like 85% and being a professor was like 60. So we published the data study of my trolls. It was really fun. And I think because I actually did that a number of times, I get trolled a little less. Like I'm not on the hit list like I used to be because they kind of know that I'm going to turn it right back. Uh, So that was kind of interesting. No wonder you've become a social scientist gal. (laughs) I got to track the trolls. Yeah. Yeah. Hit them on the head with data. That's quite oh, a yeah, but it was so funny. And but and back then, so you can't do this now, but back then you could actually publish the call name that the person was tweeting at you. They don't let you do that. Like Salon wouldn't let me do that now. They they would want it anonymous. Yeah. But back then we could say, you know, I got this tweet from this account and this is what it said and print it. Um, so you really were just calling people out like viciously. One of the genres that is disturbing me a lot now although it's been around for a long time is what i would call kind of bro vigilantism Uh, i guess it's self-explanatory but i just watched the latest episode in the what's what are now three films of the adaptation from the tv series of the equalizer i think it's called the equalizer uh, with denzel washington oh yeah And the third one is set in Italy where he goes to a small town and actually feels at home and wanted by the people. What that means is he just kills everybody associated with the mafia and tortures some of them. And it's really, it it really affected me quite deeply, actually, because he's in many ways a sympathetic character in the previous two because he's trying to protect people, but he's not doing it in a way that seeks to torture or torment, but this was just, was so shocking to me somehow. And I realized that somewhere along the line, either the death total is increasing or I'm changing my attitudes and being deeply disturbed by these things. 
really deeply disturbed because it was a well-made film. He's one of my favorite actors. As you can imagine, the landscape's incredible. And the body count just rises and rises. And it's really awful. Um, Anyway, sorry, this is not... uh... No, but I think you have, you know, I mean, so, right. So those of us of a certain age, you know, we've seen some stuff. And we know that, you know, being a misogynistic bro is not a new identity. But there does seem to be something different um, in terms of just... Again, here's a line. Okay, I'm down to watch violent movies. That's fine. But something's bothering us because there seems to be a lack of a distinction, right, between the imaginative and the real. And uh, for a long time, we thought, oh, look, everybody is living online. They're not living in the real world. And I'm like, well, you know, talk to the people in Gaza. I think it feels real. And so you have this, you have this global move towards everyday violence that is definitely not just online. And figuring out how to navigate that is not a simple thing. I mean, again, especially like we're in the classroom and so many debates on, is the classroom a safe space? I'm like, well, I don't. I don't know what that exactly means, but I certainly don't want people to feel really uncomfortable. Um, On the other hand, don't we have to have some conversations that are difficult in a sort of constructive space because they happen online in ways that are just absurd. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much sort of just meanness and pleasure from the meanness, right? It's the pleasure that I think... Now, this is something that doesn't happen to me, and it does happen to you. And I, there are all kinds of reasons that one could associate with that to explain that. But a really big one, I do think, is gender. Um, oh, yeah. For, for a decade, uh, Rick Maxwell and I had a monthly column in Psychology Today about the environment. And... The magazine created new policies a few years ago. One, more intervention into what we wrote, which amounted to censorship, especially over Trump. So but eventually Rick resigned from it and then so did I. But two, the other bit of transformation was that they used to allow comments online about what people wrote, including us. And... We were not attacked in the way you are, but we were called Nazis, feminazis, and communists, right? Not that big a deal, but it's interesting that the magazine just decided we're going to stop this, but we're also going to censor much more what our authors write, yeah? But we never experienced the harassment that you have, which would have frightened me physically and emotional. I mean, in the beginning it does, right? I get an email that says you're probably a lesbian, which means you don't have kids. But if you do, I hope they die in the next terrorist attack, stuff like that, right? And these are emails, you know, people are going to a little more trouble. I had handwritten death threats. Uh, Interestingly, it's not just that they target 
gender, right? But they are almost all entirely from guys, or at least people. What, what appear to be guys. guys. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's just this, I mean, again, I'm not the first person to notice that we have an angry white man problem, but we do. And there's just been this sort of stoking of this as the way in which power is expressed. Yeah. And it's, um, yes, it did scare me. It can scare me, but at this point I have experience with it and you know, this is one of the benefits I get now that I'm in the School of International Affairs. I actually work with people who really can protect me. You know, so if it gets bad, right, they That's will try to track people down. I, I guess the big thing here is that for years the Republican Party has fed from this crap, but now they've, having kept it in a sense under control through a succession of presidential candidates who may have been mass murderers like George W. Bush but were not overtly playing at this. And the same with their presidential candidates that failed against Obama. But for the last 10 years, they've had a candidate who is this, even though I'm sure he's as big a coward as I am. That would be hard to be, but, you know, (laughs) Um, it's interesting. Well, Prof, we're almost at the end of our time together. You've answered a lot of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is a bit infuriating as an interview because you've been outsmarted in a number of ways, you being me, right? But I wanted to just ask, invite you, should there be things that we've not touched on or that you would like to amplify that you have mentioned, um, please feel free to do so. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that I'm I'm just coming off of having been at the at the MLA, which is the Modern Language Association Conference, which again is where I go and connect with some of my cultural studies friends. And you know, I do think we are in a pivot moment for lots of reasons. Uh, again, you know, it's not just that higher ed itself is changing by the second. Um, I think it is a moment, though, I would encourage folks to use it as a moment not to complain um, or mourn the transitions we've dealt with, but really to start to think about the next steps and to, you know, pay attention to the world we operate in because it turns out I think we are the ones that have the best tools in the toolkit. Beautifully said, and a dynamic that I've experienced since restarting the podcast is between despair and hope. And I think you've taken us on a tour between those unfortunate antinomies, and you've ended with a great message of hope. So thank you very much, Prof. Thanks for having me.